I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers play with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygas, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Yeah, I can't believe they're actually going to do that uh, GoBots move. Oh, hey, guys, uh, this is Roll for Initiative Podcast, Volume 4, Issue 158. Uh, I'm Vince, sitting with Nick. 59. Uh, sorry, 59. 159. You're so awed by the potential of that GoBots movie. You're just thrown yeah. off your game. I just don't know why they renewed that. To do, since when are GoBots relevant anymore? I mean, come on. And Matt, of course. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> we're back for another show. Uh, you know, we just were, we were all taken aback by the news of the GoBots movie possibly coming out. So, yes. yep. Hasbro Absolutely. reapplied for the trademark for toys and movies. So, prepare for your GoBots push. No. <laughs> just how relevant have they been in the last 15 years, 20 years? None. Is there even still a cartoon going on? I don't even think so. No. no GoBots is dormant. Darn. Anyway, we got a great show for you this week. We're going to follow through with an email as promised. Um, yep. You know what? Uh, we don't have any stars this week. We're going to hold it off for the next show because we want to keep this compact with the module. Sure. The Secret of Bone Hill. As a write, our writer had wrote in about this. Does that make sense? A writer has wrote in? Yeah. Someone emailed us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was on our email and asked us, well, why don't you do a review of L1, Secret of Bone Hill? And we're like, okay, that's a good next show idea. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, overall thoughts of this module. It was written, in my opinion, to be a, like it would be a super module of today. If they rewrote mm-hmm. today in, in today's terms, even though it was level two through four, uh, Nick, you had a good point about the L one through three, but I'll let you make that point since it was your discovery. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> um, I yeah, like going with the first impressions. I I have to go with you, Vince. It's kind of like a super module in a in a if by today's sense almost, mm-hmm. just not that big, but it is. In a sense, it's like one of the really first sandbox-type module adventures. It's almost a mini-campaign in its own right. So, and doing a little research about L1, I found on uh, dndclassics.com, is the, there was a rumor that had it when Leonard Lokofka wrote this module when he was commissioned by Brian Bloom back in the day. Um he was commissioned to do three modules for a price of almost of eleven thousand dollars at the time, which was like a huge chunk of change. Yeah, and he did all of them probably within a year or so, and those became modules L one, Secret of Bone Hill, L two, The Assassin's Knot, and then the final one, the Lost Module L three, Deep Dwarven Delve, and. 
he also did L4 and L5, which are on dragonsfoot.org that you can download as well. Mm-hmm. And in e- each individual module, if you kind of read them, they're kind of like they're lacking something maybe. They, they're really dependent on each other in my opinion. So if you take them as a whole, the whole what everybody calls the Lindor Isle series, they all, su- they all make sense together. They all blend together, and you can see, okay, this is like a campaign setting or a mini campaign setting within the world of Greyhawk, which it was written for. So, so I, I think that way it, it makes a lot more sense because me, L1, like on its own, is like, okay, you got this, this, and here. There's no like plot points or really anything. It's very sandboxy. Is that where they got the whole L and the L series from his name? I don't know if it was from his name for Leonard Lakofka or it was because it was based in the Lendor Isles, which is kind of like southeast mm-hmm. portion off uh, the continent where the world of Greyhawk sending is. It, I guess it could be construed as both. Well, most of the module pre-tags are A, what, I mean, like A's and C's. They all had a reason, and I don't know why the L was for the L. So Yeah, I think it was for Lendor Isle. That makes sense. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts, Matt? Yeah, it's more of almost like a mini adventure setting if you just look at it as the module by itself and not the rest of the series. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's just you have the town and then you have Bone Hill and you have like the areas, but there's not like an overwhelming driving plot to push you to any of them, right. other That's than cr- yeah. other than players' curiosity. So it's really more sandboxy than most other modules of the time. And also, at the time it was written, Len Lakofka wasn't actually a TSR employee either. Right. It was a contractor, right? Right. And that w- yeah. and they usually didn't publish modules from contractors. So that's also probably why it had a different feel as well, because if you were an employee, they had their, we need this adventure and we need to go from point A to point B to point C with a plot to push it along. Whereas this is more about just exploring and experiencing the area than necessarily telling a story. Mm-hmm. So, And then also just another interesting tidbit off that D and D classic site. It was the editing of this module that, spawned against the cult of the reptile gods because it was originally yeah. shoehorned into this but then uh Gax and Lakovka decided no pushed back and said no that's not getting included so then right. we, that gave us n1 yeah and that was done uh by uh oh why is this Hendrix? one of my favorite modules uh no it's um who uh author who's actually more um well known for doing stuff for like basic D and D, Moldvay. It's Moldvay, I believe, yeah. did uh, against the cult of the reptile. Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it was Kevin. Is it Moldvay? Uh, Kevin Hendricks is the one who put in the reptilian cult. The de- he was the developer that put it in Bone Hill originally. Right, and then when N one was made, it was I'm sorry, Douglas Niles. Yeah. Douglas Niles, who wrote N1. Right. Which was originally written for, uh, I think, the the basic D&D line, but that I digress about. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I digress. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It's kind of, but it's kind of weird how like all, a lot of these things are kind of tied together. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the whole backstory of yeah. some of these modules, when you hear about the problems that had, it starts to explain why the module turned out like it did. Kind of mm-hmm. like if you look at the Errol Otis art on the back cover of a monster that's right. not in the module. It's, right. Uh, a winged Hydra. <laughs> yes. There, there's some uh, rumors on the net that uh, Errol Otis really didn't care for the module, so he just threw that together. Mm-hmm. I, I, I find it hard to believe that he did that. Yeah, the- I've read that too, though, Vince. I've read that too, that he didn't really care for this adventure, but he was, but he was, Otis was on the TSR artist staff, so he was, he was probably, hey, we need art for this module for the back cover do it yeah but i don't is there's still there's still artist integrity i don't think he would have done that i mean well you know you've heard of the hungry artist right <laughs> i just don't see i just i don't believe it i'm sorry okay i know it's like i said it's only rumor it's I, I only rumor and hearsay i think it was a more they had artwork done and they just slapped on the wrong piece of art and they just said eh, screw it and they just let it go you know what we should contact errol otis yeah, because it was Lawrence Schick that in his book that said Errol Otis botched it. Yeah, so. but we should try to get Errol Otis on the show. Sometime. Yes, we should. <laughs> we should. I heard he's kind of hard to get a hold of, though. Maybe so. we'll see. We'll, we'll uh, see if you're listening. Hey, <laughs> we did have a couple comments I forgot to mention to you guys. Uh, Dan Proctor did say thank you for the uh, review and the uh, mention of the AEC. You've oh, okay. So uh, taking the time out and give it a great mention and review. Well, you're welcome. I love it, and I hope to actually. I'm gonna. I'm looking to go back to it and actually run that campaign setting. So, and uh, Bill Barsh of Paysetter Games gave us a uh, thanks as well for the mention for all of us. Because mm. we mentioned him in that show as well. Nice. So I guess we should head into tail matters. Get right to the review. Right. Of all the evil creatures in the world, I'd like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. Okay. Today in Table Manners, we are going to talk about Module L1, The Secret of Bone Hill. Dun-dun-dun. Written by, written by Leonard Lukofka of TSR fame who wrote this part of a whole series known as the Lendor Isle series, L1, L2, and L3. L2 being the Assassin's Knot, and L3, the Lost Module Adventure, Deep Dwarven Delve. And we'll talk about those later. But, um, yeah, Leonard Lukofka, as everybody know, he wrote this. Plus, he did a series, he had a series of articles he did under the title Leo Munn's Tiny Hut in Dragon Magazine up until, like, 1986, I believe. So, yeah, so let's, um, a little bit of background on the module we talked about earlier, but let's uh, get into, I guess, the meat and potatoes of this thing. Right at the beginning, I, I, I could see that he's got a really good random encounter list, for the most part, really set for, uh, for this type of uh, level of uh, characters, or levels two to four. And I also like what we were, I think this is where we were talking about for where you kind of have to get the party going into this thing, is there's a huge 
I think, a pretty huge rumor list. Well, the one thing I wanted to point out is the rumor, uh, not the rumor, the random encounter chart is not so random that you're like, how the heck is that monster even involved in this area? Right. So okay. it does apply. Uh, yeah, go back on the rumor she was Oh yeah, it's just I, I just um, depending on the character's level uh, is the depends on the maybe the number of rumors that that character will know. Um, one of the things I found interesting though is the character levels go through one through nine. Yeah. So that I think is another hint to me that this, along with all the other modules in the series, were all intended to be a part of a larger sort of campaign. So, so just that maybe I'm wrong on that, but that was kind of the impression I got. Well, why, why is it if you're a higher level, you have a better chance to know the rumors? Because you've been around more? Is that what it is? I, I, I would think so. Right. Uh, that's what I would guess. But there's some... There's a pretty good rumor list, and of course, like any good rumor list, not all the rumors are true, or they're half-truths. So, like, uh, what is it? Uh, Falco's Tavern is run by two assassins. <laughs> well, is that true? Is it partly true? You don't know. Only the DM knows that. Well, that, stuff in italics is false. Yes. Anything in the italics to the to the dungeon master is is false. So there are actually I <laughs> a good chunk of the rumors are partly false. I guess you could say that. Yeah. Or some are completely false. Not many are completely true, but that's like all rumors. So I thought that was uh, I thought that's interesting. So as reading this module, if you're trying to find a plot hook. I guess you would refer to the rumor list and start with that. So, I guess going on from there, you have it breaks down into the wilderness encounters, then the then it goes into the basically the environs around this around the town of uh, of Rettensford, I believe it's called. Yeah, mm -hmm. Rettensford. So it goes into those the wilderness environs about that, then talks about the town itself and the castle inside the town. And that's pretty much it as far as the the basic breakdown is. But uh, there's some pretty good information here that's given to the dungeon master about what's in the wilderness environment of. You know of this section of the Lendor Isles, and Mr. Lokofka broke it down rather well for the DM too. He says, "What's a feature? This is the inhabitants. This is a layer of major inhabitants. The encounter chances, what actions may happen, and a rouster detail." So he broke it down right there for beginning uh, DMs of what might be encountered in certain areas like. Uh, at the very beginning, you have a place called the Dwomer Forest. And one of the features, there's this treeless knoll where there's a temple of clerics there. I, I Like I said in the pre-show, we were doing our notes. Uh, this really, I can't see how this was written for beginner DMs. This is too sandboxy for a beginner DM. Right. I, that's why I found it kind of intimidating up until maybe a few years ago. For a beginning DM, this is a lot of information that you have to 
you have to have some prior DM experience, I think, before running this module. You know, I, I agree with you. Right. So, yeah, right. But, because uh, just looking at it, I mean, if you for a new DM, I could see them just getting hung up on something like in this forest talking about the encounter probabilities. You have a hundred percent chance to observe birds and animals. It's forty percent likely that such an animal, though, is a fox, fal- falcon, or raccoon that'll beg for food. This increases to ninety if the party makes camp, and then there's thirty-five that the party member will see one of the clerics, and then. You're just you have all these probabilities. You're constantly rolling. Yeah, it's there's a lot of details, and I think I mentioned that prior to the show is he likes to use a lot of percentages of prob- probabilities, and I mean you're going to be using percentile rolls a lot. Yeah. <laughs> in this adventure, in fact, that's a good point because that is a good segue into this temple in the Dwomer Forest on top of the treeless knoll. It's like there's this egg-shaped building, and there's a, it's a temple of, of some sort of maybe a god of luck. It's not really said what god it is. No. It's just some sort of place where, like, these, I guess, uh, high priests who, uh, these priests, clerics who worship some sort of god of chance and luck. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the one, one of the gods, so god, god of luck or chance, whatever it is from Will the Greyhawk. It, does, it escapes me, but I would assume that's probably what you would use. But on the upside is this is a really cool area to where, as for the party, when they're exploring other areas around the town of Rettensford, if they need to go someplace for maybe some healing info about Bone Hill or maybe even buying magic items from the party. Um, it's a good place to go. So they could be some potential allies, but I thought it was funny that you go into this temple, they greet you, and, you know, if you're really good, tell them you're really nice, you give a, uh, you know, you don't give them a hassle. You know, they'll give you some wine. They'll sit you down and give you some wine, get you drunk. <laughs> And basically, you play dice, play a game of chance, basically with two ten-sided dice. Heck yeah! So, so that's a good, I guess, a good way of getting in with the with the these uh, with these priests. So that's one, the one section, uh, Dwomer Forest. Then you have this place called a uh, Bald Hill, where during the day you might encounter villagers, maybe scrounging around, maybe doing some sort of farming, but at night you have a better uh, chance of encountering a a pack of thieves, basically orcs and half-orc thieves that live, I believe, in a a cave not too far away off of Bald Hill. And from what I saw, they had some pretty good starting treasure, you know, for for the bunch of thieves. I mean, you get a longsword plus one, a leather armor plus one, a dagger plus one. Uh, the leader has chainmail plus two, a girdle of ogre strength, a shield plus one, a flail plus two. Then, you know, quite a few good magic items, which would come uh, real handy later on. Particularly if you're going to uh, the actual uh, castle that's on top of Bone Hill, the the abandoned castle. So that's Bald Hill area. Then um, they kind of grouped. One area called Guardian Peak, Lark Hill, High Top, Low Point, and Ready Forest. It's all kind of one area. 
and I guess during the daytime, this area is a common campsite, a halfway point, I guess, for for people that are going to and from Renton's Ford. This is a, a decent camping area, but also there's some, some special encounters here, some special NPCs, which I thought were I thought were kind of unique. If you if you read into some of these uh, uh, descriptions, there's this um, there's Tolvar. He's a conjurer, and he they say he says uh, Mr. Lakoff says Tolvar is an adventurer down on his luck. For a good offer, you will become a henchman. So he's third level. So not bad to have a third level magic user as a henchman. So then you have Lucinda. She's a half orc. She's a third-level fighter thief, and she could be hired for uh, as well. Then you have someone named Martin. He's a ranger. Strider. Yeah, he's a strider. Yeah. <laughs> Known <think>. as strider. <laughs> and he's a potential henchman as well. And then you have this guy at the end here. I thought that was most interesting. Valsafar Waghalster. He's an assassin. Waghalter, assassin. Waghalter? Waghalter. But what I thought was interesting about this guy is he's not necessarily going to assassinate anybody in a party. He's lawful evil, but he'll try to pass himself off as lawful neutral. And he will... Ways of detecting alignment. My God, look at the stuff he has there. Yeah, he will. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got some pretty good magic items. So, he's got him. Yeah, what is it? Uh, a ring of spell storing containing mask alignment. So, so no alignment, I guess, will not work on him. He will. Or, or detect evil. He says he will submit to detect evil, masking the attempt, but he. But not to no alignment. Right. That's weirdly worded. It is kind of weirdy. Yeah, it is. He's he will say that the particulars of his philosophy are his business, but that he is not evil. He is very unlikely to murder a party member, even for a quick gain. Uh so I guess it depends how the party treats him if they don't know he's an assassin. Well he's gonna pass us off off as a thief, so Right. Pass himself off as a thief, so he, um, I guess if he treat him well, he could be an ally, you know? Right, it's like if, it says if the party saves him in a direct manner, he'll be loyal, since he's very highly lawful, but if they all of a sudden start screwing him over on his cut of the treasure. Yeah, well, yeah, then he'll. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be some Then problems. he'll step on in and just say, you know what? <laughs> They do have a little great DM note there at the bottom. Yeah, it, it does say it is recommended that whenever a henchman is added to the party that the dungeon master not simply rattle off the character's stats, magic items, or other abilities. A henchman will tell his or her boss about himself slash herself, but will not lay out his life for a perfect stranger. So there's actually some good DM tips right there, that little paragraph. There's a little bit more to it, basically saying... You don't have to tell your whole life story of the NPC right then and there. Just you know, just say who they are and why they're here, and maybe along the road, if they stay long enough with the party, they'll they'll divulge a little more information over time. 
so that's um, the that region around Guardian Peak and the Ready Forest. Then you have another area he calls Pebble Hills, Tritop of the Kelman Woods and Spring Glade. So there's um in this area, I guess it's um, occupied by a band of gnolls and a pack of wolves. They operate independently, but the gnolls, from what I've read, it sounds like they can call upon the wolves for aid if needed. Yeah, it does seem like that they would help each other, but I'm thinking they wouldn't. Yeah. I, mean, I guess like they can, the gnolls can bark out stuff to the, uh, to the wolves to call them, and they could help them out. What I also thought was interesting, along with the gnolls, there's an ogre. <laughs> and I guess he's the leader. It doesn't really say, I don't think. I would think he would be. Yeah, I would assume he is. So oh, you got an ogre. He's pretty well... Yeah, they he, actually say he's the leader in the next page, actually. Okay, I, I, I must have missed that. So it's a very Sorry about that. Top. Yeah, the gnolls leader is an ogre. Right, okay, I did miss that. My my bad. So, Minus two electric pieces. <laughs> and he's got some pretty decent magic items, too. So, yeah, there's a... One, amongst the horde is a wand of magic missiles. So... The brooch of shielding. Brooch of shielding with 35 points to absorb magic missile damage. So, you know, for a second through fourth level party, this ogre could be a a handful with all just the magic items he has for protection. There's a lot of magic items in this module that they hand out. Well, don't hand out, but you can get. Right. Yeah, I thought that too, but there's, and I think there's a reason for it. Once you get into the the abandoned castle on top of Bone Hill, then it kind of makes sense because there's a couple encounters there where I would think they the, the party would be seriously outclassed unless yeah. they didn't have some decent magic items, and that's the next section, the Bone Bone Hill and Dead Forest. I love, the, I love that Dead Forest. Yes, the Dead Forest. So you have this hill that rises about 1,400 feet, and atop it is a ruined castle. And the hill is very rocky and not a whole lot of vegetation. At the very, at, when you get about 1,200 feet, there's like no vegetation at all. The weird thing about this place, though, is in the inhabitants section where Lakofka talks about the hill slash ruin it has is occupied by a symbiosis, though not all the partners are, quote-unquote, alive. <laughs> so it depends on what time of day you head over to Bone Hill, essentially, and investigate the uh, castle. So if you go during the daytime, more than likely you're going to encounter where where there's there's bugbears there. But at night, there's many different types of undead. And a few that are rather unique, I thought were really cool. <laughs> like the ghoul sturges. Yes. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting little addition. I love that. Basically, they're undead sturges. So when they hit you, they do one to four points of damage, and then you have to save versus paralyzation or be paralyzed. And then the ghoul sturges do another one to six points of damage automatically through blood drain. 
So, not only is it like a Sturge where they automatically hit you after the first hit for taking hit points, but they're, you're paralyzed. You cannot move if you make your fail versus paralyzation. So that's really nasty. There's also animal skeletons and another unique undead called a Skelter. Basically an undead magic user who still has the ability to cast a few spells. <laughs> Oh, are you talking about uh, Kevlar? No, no, the the Skelter, which is oh. a, uh, it's like a zombie. It is an animated remains of a once very evil low-level magic user. Yes, so you have your spell-casting low-level undead. Yeah, pretty much. So <laughs> most parties won't see that coming. No. Mm-hmm. no, they wouldn't. And then one of the other encounters, which you might have here, but my also be in the ruin is the wraith, and I'll talk about that guy in a little bit. <laughs> but there's also uh, the bugbears. Uh, there's um, actually a couple bugbear shamans that are leading this bugbear band, and there's a yeah. Then there's Telvar, the human magician, which you were talking about. I guess he's the one who's kind of animating all these undead. Yes, that's kind of what I was getting at uh, from this. The cool thing is, if you read his description, the magic items, he's got a wand of fear. So, as a DM, what I would do, because <laughs> I'm sadistic, you know, you have all these skeletons and zombies and these ghoul sturges, then you see Telvar come out and he uses his wand of fear on the party, and then they all freak out and they see all these undead coming at them and they run like crazy. <laughs> so, that would be pretty cool. That is pretty cruel. So, and cruel. <laughs> yeah. So, anything else about like the on Bone Hill, the, the the wilderness encounter that you guys might have seen that was interesting? No, no I think basically, I just want to get in, basically into the tower and everything. Yeah. yeah, that's basically what's next about the the castle ruins of Bone Hill. Again, you got some undead, some bugbears, and like we said, depends on the time of day you you go there. So, and I'm just gonna touch on just some of the what I thought was unique. Okay. In in the uh, in the castle, there's one encounter where there's in a guard tower, and um, what you find there is this special bronze horn of Valhalla. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> this Horn of Valhalla is not exactly that good to you. <laughs> unless your party... Yeah, unless you're chaotic evil. Because <laughs> it summons... You have to be chaotic evil to use it. Well, you don't have to be. You well, just... It's recommended. <laughs> it's recommended. Could be hazardous <laughs> to your health, if not. Right, because the the warriors it summons are chaotic evil. <laughs> if I, if I, uh, if I read this correctly and there are the summon warriors are immune to charm and hold spells. These warriors will attack any, but chaotic evil individuals when summoned. <laughs> so <laughs> you got two and eight of these, um, second level fighters that are summoned. And if you're lawful, good, guess what? <laughs> yeah. You're going to get pummeled. <laughs> Albeit so that's, if, 
if you did have a covert chaotic evil like hireling or henchman in your group and all of a sudden they weren't being attacked but everyone else was yeah and everyone else was now that's a good way of detecting alignment yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> so you have that uh area you also have um in area h there's a hill giant skeleton that you'll encounter i thought that was kind of cool well, just i just want to say that most of these descriptions of the tower are pretty uneventful or just basic though so. yeah because it there's nothing like I guess you want to say etched in stone. It's all a percentage that, you know, you might encounter this, or there's a percentage you might encounter that. There's no real heavy-duty, like, you know, set, okay, you're going to, this is exactly what you're going to face. Some of them are that way. But some places are not. Right, it's like when you get to the placement of the magician, there's four different areas you could find him in. It says, once you get to this area of the ruins, roll to see where he could be. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you've already encountered them and took them out, then I guess you don't encounter them anymore. So right. <laughs> it's a good. This is where the sandbox comes in. It's perfect for an experienced DM that knows what he's doing. Right, because there's yeah. if you don't keep track of that stuff, you're it could be a bit of a bit daunting for the beginning DM. I agree. So you have the bugbear shamans. I thought that was a kind of a unique encounter with them. And then you get into Telvar's workshop and bedroom, particularly the workshop. <laughs> so like it's almost like an alchemist lab, okay? Mm-hmm. So if you're able to get into the workshop, which, by the way, the door is wizard locked, yeah. um, there's a series of shelves there are 40 bottles and flasks, and any of them hold magical potions or mixed potions. These eight will radiate magic. So you might have to, I doesn't say anything about getting in the potion miscability table, but I think it could happen. Well, it, it does say if you, it's not good to mix potions. No, it says it's not good to do it because yeah. some of these might just off-right poison and kill you. Yeah, which is kind of cool because they don't really say that. I don't remember actually reading somewhere that you can that happens, but mm-hmm. I'd be wrong. And someone's probably screaming out right now saying, "Yes, you can on page." I think there was yeah. like a Dragon Magazine article or something that talked about it. The mixing, uh, different mixing potions. Well there's, the, well, there's the potion miscability table in the DMG, where there's a certain you have a certain percentage chance of like something happening to you, either good or bad, most likely bad. But from what happens here is it seems that Telvar mixed a couple of potions together in the bottle and made a new potion. For example, <laughs> there was a potion of polymorph self cross with a vampire control potion. Okay. <laughs> this one was a real discovery, but when tested, it will give no indication of the nature of its nature other than a good feeling, a warm tingling, or an unexplained desire. When fully imbibed, the the figure will become nervous and excitable. He or she will want to do something, but not know what it is. Caution will not be exercised, like they drink like a six pack of Red Bull or something. Uh, the very next living thing the character mentions, this is where it gets funny. The very next thing the living 
very next living thing the character mentions, however, is what he or she will become. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. So character classes like Magic User Fighter, except etc., will not produce any change since profession is not a physical form. But the effect will last for two to twelve days. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> so the very next living t creature that you say, that's what you'll become for two to 12 days. Oh, and there's a chance that your belongings will become part of the polymorph. You still have the same mind, but the abilities could be radically changed. Like a mimic vampire or something. Yeah. yeah. So basically it's... It, you could say uh, Jimmy Hoffa, and you become Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover. So <laughs> what, what were you thinking? Yes. <laughs> what this... just popped in there? <laughs> so, yes. Stay puffed, the marshmallow man. So there's that one. There's also a potion of gaseous form with a cross with a potion of invisibility. That one's kind of cool. Um. There and there's a few others. I don't want to give it all away, but no. I thought that was that was a pretty. This is a pretty cool area when you have uh, you have people that are uh, a little too uh, not say curious. They could uh, get themselves in some serious trouble. And also, there's a possibility that you might be able to find uh, Telvar's uh, spellbook in this area. So that's some of the interesting areas, at least on the uh, ground level of the ruins. Then you have the basement level. The only thing I thought that was maybe of interest there, it, at least for me, was the abandoned temple that was there. I thought that was kind of interesting because, like, what was this temple of? <laughs> to uh, Dedicated to whom? You mean, ah, uh, so, the temple. Yes. <laughs> yes. I read that. Section, I read ah, that. I read that as, ah, the temple. Like, ah, the temple. The temple. <laughs> you can. You say, ah, the temple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Oh, by the way, for everybody who's, like, listening, this adventure, so. this module, as far as the encounter areas, is written in, in an unconventional way. Instead of numbers for most of it, it's they use, he uses letters. Yeah. Which was, was kind of weird. So. Well, I think they were going back and forth at that time with what they wanted to use as far as, uh, uh, I guess, map keys or yeah, yeah. the, the, the formalized the format, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah they hadn't really formalized it. Normally numbers, but I think letters is just fine. Yeah, it's uh, it could be a, it's just a little bit, it's just different, you know, what you're normally used to seeing Absolutely. in a module. Yeah. I think then we, you have the. The letters, yeah. though, he was using like like letter A references one part, like one level. Letter B, if it starts with a B, it's referencing a different level. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, kind of, instead of just going like one through two hundred and fifty, right? It, so I think that's what he might have been going to uh, driving at too. I think you're right. That's how he was kind of organizing it. And then you have the dungeon level. And this is where he has some pretty good stuff. 
like the Great Ooze Cave. So there's a cave. You might encounter a Great Ooze, but a really, really cool magic staff. <laughs> you can get it. Basically a blue dragon staff. You can see, you find this staff, and it says on close inspection, it'll show a finely carved dragon head. It's head of a blue dragon. But since all paint is eaten away, the color is not obvious, and the players, unless they have previously encountered blue dragons, will not be able to recognize the exact species. It has 11 charges, and it could do dancing lights, uh, a light spell, and a kind of a unique, uh, a unique ability called spark, where there's like a 30-foot-long straight discharge of electricity that is 2 to 20 points of damage without a save to, to those, those wearing metal. Yes, two to eight points for making their save. So that's pretty cool. And then it could do lightning bolt. So, I and it doesn't, I, I'm trying to see if it says here, um, but it doesn't say if this can be recharged, staff can be recharged. So I, probably up to the DM, if it could be. Right, yeah, I yeah, I would leave it up to the DM. I mean, it's a pretty powerful but, wand, so that you yeah, only get two staff, uses of. But you know what? What you might encounter in the later on here, you, you're gonna need it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for for a low level party, you're gonna need it. So, because the very next next area, the statue room is where you run into a dun, 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 a stone guardian. And um, in this area, if I if I remember correctly, the Stone Guardian. This was the first adventure that first time in AD and D you're gonna the Stone Guardian was introduced. So this was one of the the unique monsters that was put in this uh, module by Leonard Lakofka. So you had the Stone Guardian, and um, there is a magic helm. If you can. Um, get it from the Stone Guardian area because there's another statue in the Northwest Alcove. It's a statue of a woman. She has wings and holds a two-handed sword ready to strike. And on her head is a brass helmet. And you're able to get that brass helmet. Uh, if you're good aligned, either cleric, paladin, or ranger, um, you can use the helm without a reprisal. And furthermore, the individual can pray before the statue and gain three-question contact higher plane spell. And the answers will be in form of a short sentence. But if any other character tries to uh, uh, take the helm, you might get hit by uh, the sword that she is carrying. And it always hits for 2 to 40 points of damage. So, if you're not a uh, good aligned and you try to take the helm off the head, you're going to get hit by that sword for 2 to two to 40 points of damage. Yep. And it always hits. Yeah. It's That's all, just mean. Yeah, and it's protected by anti-magic shell, magic shell, so you can't yeah. harm it with magic either. Mm-hmm. So. This, and this helm is pretty powerful. It, it does even more. Uh, the helm, if it's put, 
if it's if you're a good aligned paladin, well, obviously a good aligned paladin, but a cleric of good alignment, a paladin or a ranger, you can have the ability of true seeing three times a day. Um, but if you remove the helm, it negates the power for one full week. So it's pretty powerful. Yep. And then if non-paladin ranger good clerics wear it, they start seeing hallucinations and colored auras yes. and yeah. around living figures. <laughs> start freaking out. <laughs> yeah. So basically they start tripping. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I One thing I found out about this module as I read through it, there's some unique monsters like those ghoul sturges. You got the stone guardian. But there's some unique magic items in here, too, which I thought was really neat. I thought that was kind of refreshing, because if you take it as a whole with other modules that come up until then, most of those modules had, for magic items, were pretty much standard out of the DMG. This one has, a, I would say, considerably more unique magic items, or magic items that have been kind of tweaked to being something a little bit different from the, the DMG, you know? Like the next room, the mirror room. That's where there's like like a weird twist on the mirror of opposition. <laughs> so there's this room where there's a doorway is blocked by fallen rubble, and if you squeeze in, on the opposite wall is a mirror of opposition. But what happens when you look into it, you're drawn into the mirror upon seeing your reflection. Then you'll be on like this flat, endless plane. You'll see at a distance of about 40 to 240 feet away is an exact duplicate of yourself. And it has everything, weapons, armor, magic items, spells memorized, etc. And you have to try to defeat your duplicate inside the mirror. Unlike the other types, you know, the mirror opposition where you would see your reflection and it would come out towards you, this one you're actually drawn into it. And you can't use a wish, limited wish, alter reality, or teleport to get out. And other members of the party are powerless to help unless they too go into the mirror. But that process will form more duplicates. <laughs> you have to, yeah, you have to defeat, either kill or somehow incapacitate your duplicate before you can get out of the mirror. So this is a a weird version of the mirror of opposition. You can die in there, and then you only have like a day to recover yourself, unless if someone yeah. brings you there. Otherwise, you stay in there and die. Yeah, you stay in there and die. You're permanently dead if you don't get out within basically 24 hours of your death. Yeah. And what? So. <laughs> yeah, and the items must save or spell or be destroyed. And if they successfully save, they're just randomly transported somewhere on the prime material plane. So their gear right. just ends up as, <laughs> as random loot somewhere. So we've now explained all the random stuff you find in any module with this one magic There you item. go. <laughs> Here it is. If you're in the mirror... Funny thing is... If you're in the mirror and your friends break it, you're dead. Yeah. 
Because it was it? It says that it's held up on the wall with wizard's glue, and if you use the spell magic, if it you know when it falls away, if you don't catch it, it'll break and it's you know completely destroyed. But if you're in there, tough luck. You are stuck in there forever. Even if you your friend smashes it with a club, thinking that'll get you out of there, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So don't do that. <laughs> so it's it's worth a thousand experience points and five thousand gold. So pretty cool. And the experience for fighting yourself, too. And the experience for fighting yourself. So you have that mirror room. You also have uh, another unique monster, uh, Spectators. If anybody remembers those out of Monster Manual 2, they're like they're like beholders, but they're lawful neutral. They're from, Nirvana, from the plane of Nirvana. And there's, a, I guess you might want to call it a family of Spectators. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. There's like... A mommy and a daddy and a baby spectator, and they're all, they're guarding a librum of gainful conjuration I, I inside wonder, this room. You guys think this this um, one monster is also copyright Wizards of the Coast now, or is that not fall under it? As those unique... Spectator? Yeah, I wonder if they're part of it, because it's kind of like a beholder almost. Yeah. I, I would yeah, say... They it. are related. Yeah, I would say it probably did, because anything not explicitly stated in the OGL is retained by wizards, so... Yeah. Yeah. I just know, because they pointed out all those other creatures, and this one isn't that creature, but sort of like it. It's sort of like it. I'm wondering if that falls under... Because I could just see people trying to use it, saying, well, it doesn't say Beholder. kind of like a Beholder. It's kind of like beer. Anyway... But, um, yeah, so you have this family of spectators. Uh, if you don't mess with them, because there's other magic items in here that you can take and other, and other uh, treasure, they're, they're okay. You can take it as long as you don't take the Librum. <laughs> they won't mess with you. And uh, that's the spectator room. And probably the toughest one right here is the Wraith Lair, if you haven't encountered them already. Yeah, I had to look up the Wraith, just so I wasn't, like, losing my mind. I'm like, that's pretty powerful for second through fourth level characters to encounter. Because, mm -hmm. you know, each hit from a Wraith can do level train. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, looking at the encounter where the Wraith is at, and in fact, when you go into this area, there's a very strong, I would say, not very strong, but there is a strong negative plane uh, influence in this area. In fact, the, in wherever you encounter him, of the three caves where the wraith might be, the wraith can regenerate one hit point per round while he's in this area. And also, protection from evil, blast, chant, prayer, and curse will not function in these three rooms. So, you got that on top of just the wraith itself that you have to defeat, which makes it very difficult. And now, you know, makes you realize, oh yeah, you know, all those magic items that we thought were too powerful. <laughs> yeah. This is probably where you're going to need them. And then also the wraith can summon all the remaining skeletons and zombies and Zombiers and uh, Skelters left. Yes. So it'll become there, a massive battle. Left, yeah. It's got friends. <laughs> yes. But he has a pretty good horde. He's got a, well, I'll say, yeah, he's got a pretty good horde. He's got a, 
you know, good amount of coinage, a nice necklace, a black pearls, a magical battle axe plus two, a shield plus three, and a ring of elemental command, which is pretty darn cool. You ask me. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good payoff if you eliminate this wraith. Hmm. Well, that ring of elemental commando has a little catch to it. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a little caveat to it. You, you can elaborate on that if you like. <laughs> yeah, you have this ring of elemental command air. Great, you get summon air elemental. There's a catch to it. To be activated, a seven hit die monster from the elemental plane of air must be killed by the wearer. If mm -hmm. you, Yep, and then an eight hit die monster that breathes fire, lightning, or can turn someone to stone also to activate at will to also activate it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. so you, you got to do a little massive combat. So a seven hit die uh, air elemental with a party of second level players looking a little rough, especially after you just all fought a wraith. Can you say TPK? Yeah. <laughs> Total party kill. So, yeah, that's one that you probably put away until you're a higher level to actually use it. So, yeah, and also the wearer needs to do half the damage mm -hmm. to this air elemental to actually even have the ring work. Otherwise, yep. it will not activate. You are correct, sir. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's you know the wraith room or the wraith uh, area. It actually covers three different uh, caverns, three different caves. Then you have. I thought were two really interesting rooms where one depends on the other how the whole thing plays out. There's one place called the Mystery Light. When you unlock the door to this room, there'll be a rush of like warm air and a soft light will glow intensely, almost like full daylight. The un undead any around will not enter the room, and you'll feel that the temperature is a very dramatic change once you go inside because in the other areas it's like below zero but when you go in here it's like 65 degrees and the air is fresh and smells of slightly scented of orange blossoms but once you go in you must make a save versus magic at minus three for a powerful charm person spell if you fail the save you'll go to the very next room which is this place called the study. So you go into this one room of the mystery light. You go in, you're charmed, and you immediately want to go to this other room. And in the study, basically it's a weird encounter with an undead lawful good magic user. <laughs> I thought this was, this was really cool. <laughs> so you go into the study room. And there's a roll-top desk with a bunch of drawers. Um, there's an easy chair, a rack of 100 books, and a skeleton chained to the back wall. The skeleton is animated, but incapable of breaking its bonds. But that's Charm Person from the previous room, right? When you go in here, you immediately want to sit down and begin. Either begin you either want to begin writing at the desk, or you want to lie down and go to sleep or you want to sit down and begin reading, and you will show no other desire to leave the room. You want to stay in there, basically, forever. 
So dispel magic might break the charm if thrown from within the room. It will have no effect if thrown into the room from the mystery light room. In fact, no spell whatsoever can cross between the two rooms as there is a special anti-magic screen in the doorway. So, yeah, this one could be a little weird. Again, like you were saying, Vince, if you're not an experienced DM, if you don't read through this whole thing, um, the, it's very detailed. It's going to be a bit daunting for a beginning DM if you're not careful how everything works in this thing. Well, the little sections with the notes for the DM is very helpful. But... Yeah, it is. But I like the skeleton when they talk about it. Or let me, before the skeleton, I thought this was a really cool magic item here. There's a pitcher and a platter. And they are manipulated by unseen service servants kept in the room. They have been made powerless to approach within five feet of the chain skeleton. But upon command, the pitcher will fill with water, herbal tea, or wine. Mm -hmm. And the platter will produce a complete meal of beef, lamb, turkey, or pheasant, along with all the trimmings for four people upon command. And the mug will produce mead, beer, or ale upon command. Pitcher can be filled three times a day, the platter once, and the mug six times and each must be clean and empty the function. I love those. Those are great little magic items. Yeah, they're not powerful, but they're enough that it will be, you know, if you don't have any food or drink, boom, there it is. Exactly. You know, they're not a whole lot of experience points. They're worth quite some gold. But it's like one of those handy little magic items that you can have if you're out there in the wilderness and you need food and you don't have any iron rations left. Boom, there you go. Stick it in your bag, and then, you know, after a couple days of eating iron rations, you can eat this and be like, ah, relax. Yeah, at least you uh, yeah, at least you get one, a full meal, and you can at least uh, replenish yourself with some water or some ale or whatnot. So that's pretty cool. I like that. Again, another unique magic item in this module that he, that, uh, that he added. Now we have this skeleton, and I love this. He's the remains of a lawful good 15th level magic user who once came to the ruin to do battle with the evil creatures within. His attempt, though valiant, was not successful, and he is now kept here imprisoned, not wholly alive, but not yet wholly dead. So he's like one of those skelters that we talked about previously, because his skeleton has, has a tongue and eyes. He also shares the immunities of the skelter, but a detect evil or no alignment They'll show that he's not evil. In fact, he's lawful good. If he is destroyed, he'll simply reform in 24 hours, even if his bones are powdered. So he can't really be killed or destroyed, I should say. Um, he can talk on his own, but you can try speak with dead. He will only roll his eyes and move his head to normal speech. And his answers will be very brief, and he'll volunteer no information. He wants, he'll say things. He wants release, freedom, peace. He wants to cease his undying state. So the only way you can do this is if you do remove curse or exorcism. And if it's successful, you will get, the, the caster of those spells will get a limited wish. 
So that's pretty cool. And that's pretty much about the about the Bone Hill and I guess the secret. Mm -hmm. What is the secret of Bone Hill? Because you never really know. Is it the Wraith? I, is it this undead, lawful, good 15th level magic user? You know? What is the secret of Bone Hill, guys? <laughs> it's a secret. <laughs> the secret's a secret. Yeah, because it's not really elaborated on. You notice that? <laughs> yeah. Why is the castle in disarray? Why are you... Yeah, well... Well, it's like, you know, the module's called the secret of Bone Hill, so what's the secret? You know? It's not... Nothing is said about what the actual secret is. So I can only assume it's either, like, the, the wraith that lives there, maybe, or this undead lawful good magic user. So you draw your own conclusions. But that's the castle there, the, the ruined castle. And then you have, later on the module, the last part really is the village of Rittensford. And um, it's pretty standard, you know. Uh, gives a good description on most of the locations in the town. There's a quick reference guide right at the very beginning, which I think is very handy. You know, what it's made of, the construction of the, the, the building, the type of location, and the occupants. That's pretty much all you need as a DM. But there's a detailed encounter key, like for the castle. And under, again, those notes for the DM, mm -hmm. that kind of alludes to that you really need module L2 if you want to talk, if you want to really delve into the abbey and the castle. It actually does say it there. Yeah. The so exact information they're in, the map of the castle are not likely to be necessarily, necessarily I can't speak today, necessity <laughs> to until AD&D module L2. So you actually do need it. Yeah. That's why I said like before, it's like you need L2 to work with L1 if you really want to get more into, I guess, the politics of what's going on in the area. Because that's what L2 really delves into. The assassin's not. So, but there is a brief description of the inhabitants of the castle, the Baron and his family, and all the servants, guards, and what have you. But there's nothing elaborated on, you know, what might be the problems inside the, the castle. So, that, so there's, there's not a whole lot of, I guess, unique stuff going on in there. I mean, there was... Um, the, uh, what's his name, uh, Peltar, who's the sorcerer for the Baron. He has his tower, but nothing really unique otherwise, at least that I saw. But you do, if you, if for some reason your party decides to go further into the castle on their own, because maybe they're not exactly good aligned, because you know how parties can be, because they just want to get as much loot as they can sometimes. There's some there's some areas below the castle that are kind of dangerous, because there's another stone guardian. Actually, a couple places there, there's some stone guardians. The kitchen which I run thought by, was... Yeah, the kitchen's run by ghouls. Yeah. Um, 
So that's a kind of interesting thing because when I saw like the stone guardians here, I'm like, hmm, there was a stone guardian in the other castle. I wonder if there's a link between who lives in Rettenford, the Rettensford, the the Baron and his family, and what what was in the old castle on Bone Hill. Maybe there's a you know some sort of link because you find stone guardians in both places. So. Hmm. So I don't know. I was kind of kicking that around in my head. And then um, it gets into the details of Rittens Ford itself. Um, there's a there's a Fletcher by the name of Pello. He's an elf. And there's a like a general store run by a half elf named Feldman. There's an armorer by the name of Elton who's a berserker. I thought that was cool. And did anybody catch this? The Smith named Smith? I thought that was actually Smythe in a joke. Or Smythe. Yeah, Smythe, but... the Smith. Yeah, unoriginal. Yeah, but still. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Goofy, that's all it is. He has a really cool magic item, though. He has a, a special beaker of multiple potions. And it's valued at 10,000 gold. It will produce one each of the following potions once each week until a total of 18 potions have been produced. Longevity, polymorph self, and speed. So that's pretty cool. Then uh, you have, um, there's a boyer by the name of Perk. And you have a, and he makes such excellent quality bows that there's a 25% chance of one of the bows that you buy from him are actually plus one to hit. Is by the quality. <laughs> then you so, got the, yeah. Yeah. Then you got the tavern run by the mob, Falco. Yeah. <laughs> you got the tavern owned by two dwarves. The dwarven mob, Falco. The, the, the dwarven mob. And then the Abbey of Falcon, who's the Sewell god of air, winds, and clouds. Earth, wind, and fire. Oh. Earth, wind, and fire? No. <laughs> There's a few other places. There's another inn called the Inn of Dying Minotaur. There's a tavern called the Tavern of the West Wind. Um, it really doesn't matter until you get kind of further in. There's really nothing. Right, and there's a guardhouse which has some has a little bit of like a, I guess a a dungeon area where there's like some large rats Let's below, some, some more skeletons. That, that secret complex below the, the guardhouse. Yes. And um, that's pretty much it yeah. as far as the uh, town of Rettensford itself. So, And then at the very end, you have a breakdown of the two unique monsters, the Stone Guardian and the Spectator. And, of course, your sample player characters in case you... Yes, that's right. Your sample player. Characters. There's one thing that was weirdly written in here, and I thought it was really funny, is when you find that staff with the dragon head that's a purple dragon, mm-hmm. and it says, if the players have ever encountered I'm like, how do the players encounter a dragon in this world? Yeah, I mean, I, was gonna say, that I mean, characters? before they've ever been in here, they've maybe been first level. It's like, if they're encountering a blue dragon at first level, they're... <laughs> no, no, it says the players. Oh, the players. <laughs> that's what I was laughing at. 
Okay, I guess it meant player characters. Yeah, I know. I just, I just thought it was funny because it said if the players, and I'm thinking to myself, um, if my players ever encountered a purple dragon, I'm running. Yeah. Purple, blue, whatever it may be. <laughs> but that's pretty much the adventure. Yep. In a nutshell. Um, in, a, in a nutshell. So what are your overall thoughts, guys, on, on Module L1? Uh, uh, reading through it again. Oh, again? Um it probably falls more into DM rules if you want to head into that. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that would be our next segment. Let's head on to there, I suppose. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want, but are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. I will look for you. I will find you. All right, I guess I'll announce DM rules. <laughs> so I guess uh, in DM's rules, as a DM, how would you run this adventure? How would you fit into your campaign? You know, hint suggestions. So I, I guess, Vince, start with you since I've, I think I've talked enough. <laughs> what do you think as far as, like, hints, tricks, tips for DMs for running this module? I think this, this module could, be, could fit into any campaign role the way it's written. Mm-hmm necessarily have to be part of the Greyhawk world. It can be shoved into anywhere. Just incorporate the names. And it is very sandboxy, so it's kind of a module you think I might like. Mm-hmm. But it's, since it's written by somebody else and it has kind of a certain way it's supposed to go. I don't know. It's, it's hard. Cause this module looks like it should be formatted better as far yeah. as where to go, what to do. But it's just kind of like, here's this, here's that. Do whatever you need to do. Mm-hmm. That just drives me up the wall. Because if I'm reading a module, I want to know what to do in the module, not just here's this, here's that. Just enjoy. It's a little too open, maybe? If I'm doing it myself, I'm fine with that. But if I'm looking at a module with the way it's supposed to be written, I want it to tell me where it's going to go. So I know. That makes sense. I'm, whatever, buying this or borrowing this from a friend or something, I want to know where this published module is supposed to go. Not just the players on a wild goose chase that they wrote. Mm-hmm. I have my own yeah, I, got, I got the impression, yeah, too, this is very player character driven. Yes. They have to go and discover the area themselves of what sort of mysteries might be around. Right. So, I view it as more of a mini campaign setting than a module. Yeah. It's more of here are some locations, here's some stuff in the locations. Have at it. Mm-hmm. It. If you look at it not as an adventure but as like a setting, you can, yeah, plop this anywhere and integrate it into your campaign, intertwine some of your own campaign settings history into it and like explain why the castle's in ruins. There's a lot of questions you have about it that you can flesh out and blend it into your existing campaign and it'll work great. But if you think of it as an adventure, it's – not really that. It's more of this is an area that you can explore. And so if right. think of it more as a setting, and then I think you'll get more enjoyment out of it. That's funny you mention that. I thought the same I thought the same thing uh, same thing too. It's it's a mini campaign setting. So you know, because it's it technically is a set in the world of Greyhawk, but it's in Lendor Isle. So it's in that little niche 
of that world, but it's been fleshed out a little bit more. But yeah, as a as an adventure on its own, as a as having like a beginning, middle, end, it really doesn't have that. Yeah, there's it's not. Very, yeah, there's not an overarching very, story. No, there is no overarching story at all, and that's where Module L two comes in. Assassins not because you really, if you want that, if you want that arc, that story arc, you have to have L two. Well, I would say have to, but it would help. You know, because they are tied together, so that would be one way you can use that having having both of them together. So, I also thought that. Um, oh darn it! it the the thought now eludes me. But um, if I just remember when I first got this module mm-hmm. and reading through it, I I wanted to like it, and I didn't. But now that I've revisited it and I've taken it in with all the other modules in the series, I actually kind of like this module now. I, I like it more. Mm-hmm. And one way I did use this module is a few years ago when I was doing um, a, an AD&D campaign I wanted to use my, uh, the one adventure I like for beginners and one attention, uh, against the cult of the reptile god. Or um, and also the U series. I wanted to kind of tie them together. The you know Sinister Secret Assault Marsh, that series with U uh, two and U three. What I did is I took Module L one here. I took Bone Hill and mashed it with Salt Marsh. Basically, I used Renton's Ford as my base for Salt Marsh because Salt Marsh was not really elaborated at all in that module, but it has a great story in Salt Marsh, has a great story arc, so I mashed the two together. I just took out the name Rentonsford and substituted Salt Marsh for it, and that was my town. Yeah. It worked out great. It's a great setup for a town if you just want to borrow a town and rename it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I did, and I think it works really well for that, so... And I think at the time, I think Bone Hill was one of those few modules, might be the only one, where the town was really that detailed. You know? There wasn't that many modules at that time, I don't think, that really had, like, detailed town areas. Yeah, the the only one even close would be Homlet. Homlet and maybe it's the Cult of the Reptile God with with Orlane, with the village of Orlane. So... I don't know about any other tips as far as running it. I think you would have to be a little more experienced as a DM. Right. You know? You'll really want to put some thought into why are the players going there? That mm-hmm. That's why are they – because it kind of works under the assumption is written. They're just there to go and loot the ruins. Right. And that's it. Just take a bunch of stuff. I mean, if that's the kind of campaign you like, sure, go for it. I mean, right? that's fine. Yeah, but I I think at this point, most RPG campaigns have evolved past the kick the door, loot the room. Players still do it as a mm-hmm. function of it, but it's not the primary goal of it is just to collect a bunch of random magic items. 
So right. you would want to do that. You'd also be prepared to roll lots of percentiles because every chart in there that requires a random roll is a percentile chart. Yes. He loves his D10s. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. And also, you with this, the different areas, I don't you could almost just run them separately. You don't even need to have them all connected. I almost could see it being modular. You could pull the ruins out from the hill. You could have the hill be even by the itself. module in itself is modular. Yes, it is. <laughs> the the way it is written, you could just pull out different sections of it. You think, oh, I re- like you really like the idea of the uh, dead hill. You just mm-hmm. pull that out and throw it in. You don't have to have the ruins and everything else that goes with it. There's, sure. You're it, absolutely right. Yeah. you Or you could just pull the town out. You could pull the mm-hmm. ruins out. You could pull the yeah. temple out. It's the way it's written. None of it is interconnected that much with the other. So it's horribly a modular campaign setting. <laughs> But for some other, but for some other DMs, that's a great toolbox to have, right? You know, if you really think about it, uh, that you know, oh man, I gotta run, uh, I gotta have something for campaign here. Oh wait, here's a town, I can use that. Okay, or if like, oh I man, I need a quick dungeon. Okay, you'll take the uh, the ruined castle, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's I think that works very well for that. Right, yeah. There's a lot you can pull from, mm-hmm. and then it has like some unique concepts in there, like the spell casting zombies that players will be mm-hmm. like take, taken aback by the first time they run across it. So there's a lot of interesting ideas, but it's not something you're going to be able to pick up and just run straight through. Yeah, and and I think that's a good point. There's a lot of interesting and unique stuff in this module, which I think again. We'd have to stress as a beginning DM, it uh, could be a bit daunting because there's a lot of stuff that's not uh, of the norm you would see in other adventures. Nope. Yeah, it's no. Yeah, it's not linear. It's very much where your players decide to wander, and if you're mm-hmm. a new DM, that could be a little overwhelming. Right. Right. So, yeah, it's. A module for the experienced DM, yeah, you should definitely pick this up and loot from it and steal the ideas because there's a lot of good stuff in here. But I I can't see just running like L1, then going running L2, then running L3. Right. It would be you run L1, L2. Mm -hmm. Together. Yeah. Right. Because it's like L1 is the setting, L2 is the plot. Right. And then and L3 is like totally unrelated to the other two, but it's a dungeon delving module in its entirety. Right. That wasn't originally released until the uh, anniversary box set. <laughs> yep. Deep Dwarven Delve, L3. Yep. But, and I think that's getting into the other thing I, I said before, taking the whole series together, and I think you could probably throw in what Mr. Lakofka did later on with L4, and L5 makes, I think, a really cool campaign setting inside World of Greyhawk, a mini campaign setting. I'm actually really intrigued by it, and I might want to try it. I've got to read through all the stuff, particularly L4 and L5, but you know what? It, it's it's different. I For some reason, it, there's something that says to me, hey, you know what? Try this out. This is something really interesting going on here. Right. So. 
Yeah, because it's very much different than all the other modules that were being written at the time because all of mm-hmm. the other modules were very much you go to point A, you go to point B, you go to point C, very linear. And this is yeah. really the first module that was more freeform. And I yeah. think it had something to do with at the time. I think Len was actually a contractor, not an actual TSR employee, which was a right. rarity. So, th- But he was well-known within the gaming industry before that. I guess he was well-known within the wargaming field. Right. So and he, he also had, had a lot of credibility. Of, uh, tournament play as well. He did. Yes. So that's how he was. Well, he was around the scene quite a bit because yeah. at the first tournament, he was at the first official AD and D tournament at winter fantasy. He was, he took second place. Yeah. And then there was that same year is when Brian Bloom approached him at a convention in Seattle about writing adventures. So right. it was that tournament play and the other stuff he was doing because he also knew Gary as well because yep. Gary would pass uh, manuscripts for the player's handbook and DMG to him. And so, he, I mean, he, so he was around the scene, but he wasn't an employee. Right. So I think that might have also had something to do with the different approach because instead of right. being in-house where you have like a style guide of module – he wrote what he thought was lacking at the time, and it led to something very different. It sure did. Yeah, it's just going to pretty much wrap things up this week. I think so. So overall, I mean, uh, what is it? What do we use? Swords? <laughs> yeah. For our reviews? Yeah, swords. One out of ten, or was it one out of five swords? One out of five. Um, I would say overall I give... L1, four out of five swords. I'm going to give it uh, three out of five only because it doesn't have any real clear direction for a new DM. It's too it's too sandboxy for a new DM. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going like three and a half, tilting a little towards more towards four because as an idea treasure trove, it's great. As a adventure module... It's so so. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a just it's an interesting product. That if it wasn't called a an adventure module, I think it might be received better. Yeah, because you go in with certain expectations, and this throws some of those on its head. Yeah, that's why I think I didn't go with five. I went with four because a couple of those things you mentioned, but the offset that I like the uniqueness of it. Yeah. Of how it was developed, and also the uniqueness of the monsters, some of the magic items, and some of the situations that arise. So I, I, that's why I gave it like four out of five swords. Gotcha. All right, so I guess that'll wrap things up, and we'll say keep it original, cold, keep it old, and good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. 
This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. Thank you.